We are in Galatians chapter 5 this morning, Galatians chapter 5. And I opened up right to it because my notes were there, so I kind of cheated a little bit. I want to thank Pastor Danny for giving me this opportunity to come speak God's Word to you again this morning. And I wish him well, and congrats to his daughter and Jeff for their marriage yesterday. And like Terry said, tomorrow is the 4th of July, and I don't know if you know this or not, but that's a pretty big deal in our country. And we are reflecting on the freedoms that we have as a nation. We're reflecting on the freedoms uh, that, that we have, and it, it's so important. And, and part of why we celebrate this is tomorrow was the day that our declaration was ratified back in 1776 by John Hancock first and then the Continental Congress. And, and I don't know if you know this, but I was taught growing up that everyone signed the Declaration on the 4th of July. And now we are learning, most historians are saying that maybe 34 of the 56 people signed the Declaration on the 4th. And the majority of the 22 remaining signed by August 2nd. And most historians believe that Matthew Thornton from New Hampshire was the last to sign because he did not join the Second Continental Congress until November. And they said he asked and received permission to sign his name on November 4th of 1776. And I say all of this uh, because again, tomorrow's the 4th, but the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights is what we look to as a nation that says, hey, this gives us our freedom. But our founding fathers didn't see it that way. And it, it was written by Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration, and you could probably quote it with me, the line that reads, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so even our founding fathers believed that our freedoms didn't come from these documents. That these documents were adhering to the freedoms that we already had in our creator. And I can't prove it, but I think Thomas Jefferson was maybe inspired by our text today in Galatians 5.1, which reads, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. And I believe they were right. Our freedom is found in Christ and in God and God alone, which tells us that as a nation, not only are we responsible to one another and how we live in this freedom and govern one another in our freedoms, but we're responsible to God and how we govern and live in our freedoms. And so this morning we have to ask ourselves: if God has freed us, then what freedoms do we have in Christ? And that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's pray. O oh, Sovereign Lord, 
as we come here today to hear your word that you would have to share with us today. I, I pray that you would open our ears to hear and that you would open our hearts to receive your word and set our minds to act upon your word and to live in the freedom that you have given us. And I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So Paul, in the context of this, in chapter 4, was dealing with the church of Galatia uh, about certain Jewish Christians who had come to the Gentile believers saying, hey, you need to follow the law of circumcision and the Mosaic law in order to be saved. And in chapter 4, Paul kind of sets up the law of circumcision and what it really was by giving us the short story of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Hagar, and Ishmael. And he says to the reader uh, of this letter, they would have known chapter 17 of Genesis, verse 11, that says circumcision was a symbol. It wasn't the covenant promised to Abraham. It was a symbol of the covenant. It was a banner. And he tells us the covenant with Abraham was not only that he would be a father of nations, but that these nations would be promised in Christ an inheritance of righteousness and faith in Christ. And the readers would have understood this and know this. And so Paul says at the end of chapter 4 that Hagar and Ishmael was Sarah and Abraham's way of accomplishing God's covenant for them. Because at the time, Abraham had no children. Sarah was barren, wasn't going to have any children. And Sarah said, hey, take my handmaiden, Hagar. God says, you're going to be a father of many nations, so here, take my handmaiden. And he says, Ishmael was a symbol of doing things their own way and became a slave to sin because of it. And then God came up a few chapters later in Genesis and told Abraham, no, Ishmael is not your heir that I promised you. Your heir is through Sarah. And a year later, he had Isaac from that point. And Isaac, Paul says, was the child of the free woman. And at the end of verse 4, he says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God and Christ has also forgiven you, because he says we are children of the free person, of Sarah. We are children of the promise, not children of slavery. And this led him to, to say what he says in verse 1 of chapter 5, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. I'm sorry, I read the wrong verse. My Bible went over to Ephesians 4. Uh, But when he says this, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. He tells us, he gives the picture of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, where he's in the synagogue and he picks out the Isaiah scroll, right? And he reads this. He reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to set free those who are oppressed. 
So we come back full circle. What freedoms has Christ given to us? And there's three freedoms I want to share with you this morning, and they're not an exhaustive list of freedoms. There's more. But he has called us to be disciples. He has not called us to be believers. He's called us to be disciples. And these three freedoms I want to share is going to help us be disciples for him this morning. So the first freedom that he gives us is freedom from our debt. And to understand this, our debt is not our college loans, it's not our mortgage, uh, it's not our credit card debt that he frees us from. And, and so to understand this, we need to answer two things. We need to answer what is our debt and how did Christ free us from our debt? And very simply, what is our debt? Our debt is bringing death into God's life-giving creation through our sin. Our debt is bringing death into God's life-giving creation through our sin. And you have to remember Romans 3.23 here, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All of us. And sin is simple of missing the mark. And God created us for a purpose that he set in motion, and somewhere down the line, we missed it. We missed his purpose, we missed his will, every single one of us. There's not one of us here living completely in his will today because we've missed his mark. And Paul argues in Romans that this happens because we inherited from Adam a corrupt nature, a corrupt nature that is bent on fighting against the will of God. And so we see that our debt is sin, which ensnares us from being not only in the presence of God, but prevents us from doing what God wants us to do. But we also see that our sin also affects other people. It's not just us. And you could see it in your own life that maybe you're here today and you're ensnared by some evil or harm that's been done to you that prevents you from being what God wants you to be. And either way, our sin ensnares us in guilt and condemnation and fear and anger and all sorts of other things and prevents us from being who God wants us to be. And Jesus gives this example in Luke eleven four 4 of this, and he pictures it very clear as a, clearly when he's teaching his disciples how to pray. And he says, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive those who are indebted to us. And you see the clear picture, okay, my sin, I need forgiveness from, but I also am ensnared by harm done against me that I need to be free from. And this is our debt. The bottom line, our debt again, 
is this corrupt nature of sin brings death into the creation that God breathed his life into. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of his glory. Three chapters later in Romans 6.23, he says the wages of sin is death. Which leads us to James 4.4, which says, because we have sinned against God and brought death, we are enemies with God. Which leads us to John 3.36, which says, not only are we enemies with God, but we are subject to his wrath. And Revelation 20.15 says, not only is it a physical death, there's an eternal punishment to pay, and that is the lake of fire. But praise God for what Paul wrote here, Terry. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. The story doesn't end here. The story doesn't end with punishment and death or being enemies with God. Christ came to set us free. And so how did Christ set us free? It's through the atonement of the cross and his resurrection. And the atonement covers various different pictures of justification, uh, of forgiveness, of reconciliation, and, and a lot of other characteristics. And there's three characteristics I want to give of atonement that are going to very clearly show how Christ sets us free. And that's forgiveness, propitiation, and reconciliation. And, and so we just read it a minute ago in, in Luke 11:4. Jesus gave us the tool to overcome our sin and those who have sinned against us, and that's forgiveness. Forgiveness. I don't know about you, but the last thing I want to do for someone who has harmed me or my family is to forgive them. It's the last thing I want to do. But what Jesus is saying here, if you want to be free from it, you have to forgive. And not only do we have to forgive, we must first be forgiven our own sin before we can forgive. As Kyle Miller would give his Millerism, uh, you cannot give what you do not have. And this is a very messy process. It just doesn't happen. You have to go through a process where the end result is forgiveness. So what is forgiveness? Dan Allender, I think, says it best in his book, Wounded Heart. And he defines forgiveness as this. He says, it is the offer of restoration to those who have done harm for the purpose of destroying evil and enhancing life. And what he's saying here, <laughs> he, he's not saying to forgive and forget, because that's impossible. You cannot forget. It is impossible to forget harm done against you and harm you've done. It's impossible to forget that. But it's not impossible to forgive and be forgiven so that we are no longer ensnared by it. 
And what he's not saying with this forgiveness, he is not saying that we also have to let these people back into our lives. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is it needs to enhance your life in a way to where you're truly praying for this person who harmed you or praying for this person that you've harmed, that they would truly find salvation in Christ so that one day you're standing in his presence together truly healed from it. And you're not going to get there overnight. It's a process. It's a hard process but it's a necessary process. So how does Christ free us? First, by offering his forgiveness so that we can forgive and be free from the evil done against us and the evil that we've done to others. And the second way, the second characteristic of his atonement is propitiation. And, and this, is a, this is an interesting word. 1 John 2.2 tells us that Christ is the propitiation of our sins and the sins of the whole world. And Hebrews 2.17 tells us Christ, as our high priest, is making propitiation for our sins before the Father. And the best way to, to describe this word is by what it does. And what propitiation does is it cancels our debt. Number one, it cancels our debt. And number two, it satisfies the one we are indebted to. And it's both. It cancels our debt and it satisfies the one we are indebted to. And and Dr. Paige Patterson said this about it. He said, justice is necessary. In order to deal with the justice of God and his wrath against sin, propitiation becomes the only translation that incorporates both concepts of cancellation and the satisfaction of God's wrath. Because remember, our debt puts us in direct wrath of God. And so his wrath needs to be satisfied and our debt needs to be removed. And in order for the propitiation of Christ to work, listen to this, our sin and the satisfaction of God's wrath, in order for that to work, he must bring a freedom to us in such a way that removes our old corrupt nature to sin and replaces it with something new. That's the only way it works. And praise God, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, is it not? That no matter what evil we live in, and no matter what evil that's been done to us or that we've done, Christ recreates and makes things new. Thus canceling our debt and satisfying God in whom we are indebted to. And further, the way that this his wrath is satisfied in propitiation is through our next word, reconciliation. Reconciliation. Second Corinthians two, or Second Corinthians five, seventeen through twenty, says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come propitiation, the cancellation of our debt. 
right there. Here's the satisfaction of God's wrath. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I know what this word reconciliation is as your church accountant. And Ernie Woodby and our finance committee and our church auditors know that I know what this word reconciliation is. And not only that, they will attest that I have the ministry of reconciliation. And I'm proud of that because that means I'm doing my job. And it's an easy word. In the Greek, it, it means to return to favor with someone you've been out of favor with. And another way to define it are two books, separate books, that are brought into balance with one another. And we get this picture uh, very easily. We all have a place where we put our money and withdraw our money from. It's a checking account, it's a savings account, it's an investing account. And we all keep track of the money we put in, or we should be, we all keep track of the money we put in and the money we spend. And at the end of the month, we get something from this bank or this investing firm called the statement of our prior month's activity, right? Now we should be balancing these two things together. And it's very important to do because once we do it, we immediately see the benefit of this account right? Or we see the danger coming ahead that oh, I need to move some money over there this week to kind of help. But it gives us a glimpse of what's coming ahead, and it also gives us a glimpse of the benefit that we have in doing so. Now catch this, if you're not doing it, you're in danger of possibly being overdrawn of paying out too much money that you don't have, which puts you in debt. And not only that, when that happens, guess what your investment firm and the bank's gonna do? They're gonna penalize you even further. And your debt's gonna become even greater. Now look at this. John, in Revelation 20, verses 12 and 15, gives us this picture. And he says in verse 12, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And what John is saying here, hey, all of us are gonna stand before God's throne and the books of our deeds are gonna be laid open before God. And God's gonna come with his register, with his book of life, and we're gonna be held accountable to what's written in our books. 
But not only that, we better be reconciled to his book of life. And there's only one way that we can be reconciled to his book, and that's through Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Reconcile your account before it's too late, or otherwise you're going to be overdrawn in your debt, and there's a hefty penalty to pay for that. Be reconciled. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. The second freedom, this is how Christ frees us from our debt. And that leads to the second freedom that he's given us. And that's the freedom to be in his presence. Freedom to be in God's presence. And we sing about it this morning. We sing about a time coming where we're going to be standing in the presence of God in heaven. And yes, we're talking about that, but there's also his presence here and now. Jesus said in John 10.10, he has come to give us life and to give it more abundantly to where we can experience his life here and now. And we no longer have to go to a special place like in the Old Testament to the holies of holies one time a year and do special things before we can enter to enter into God's presence. We simply have to submit to him and join him here because he's here. Do you feel his presence here? He is here. And this caused Paul to say in 1 Corinthians 16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? And so we see the two things of how we are in God's presence today. And again, to his first century readers, being a temple, they connect that with the holies of holies, the place where God's presence dwelled. His presence is here. You are that temple. You are that place where he abides. And he says, furthermore, it's evident because his spirit dwells in you. And that word dwells means to be operative in, to inhabit. He is operative in you, and you could see the benefits of him being operative in you. So what are these benefits? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look here at the end of Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The first benefit that he gives us is the fruit of his Spirit. And this fruit of the Spirit, this is awesome. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is simply this. The fruit of the Spirit is the evidence of a believer's faith so that the unbeliever can clearly see if it is Christ who has changed us and continues to change us as we submit to him. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And you look at it today and it's so sad because when 
you ask an unbeliever today about their thoughts about the Church of America, they use every descriptive word except the fruit of the Spirit. And we could justify this and say, well, they don't, they don't come to our church, Terry, so of course they're, they're going to say these things, but they don't know. But there's a level of truth in there. And it should alarm us that we have left the Spirit of God outside of our church. Because if he was truly in here, the descriptive words that they would use about our church would be the fruit of the Spirit. That's one of our benefits of being reconciled to him. A second benefit is found in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul talks about the different gifts that he has given us to work together to accomplish his kingdom work. And now we all don't have the same gifts. We all are different, and that's okay, but we have the same spirit that brings unity. And it's, it's like a puzzle. My, my favorite analogy of this is a puzzle. You get a puzzle, you see a picture on the box, and you open it up and you look at one piece, and that one piece doesn't give you the entire picture. It gives you a portion of the picture. And you have to put that puzzle together to get the complete picture. And so it is with our faith. I alone am not going to show you the complete work of Christ that he has done. But when I start working with other believers, the unbeliever clearly sees through the gifts that we use. It's the same spirit who does that. And, and he warns us, my, my gifts, <laughs> I like to analyze, I like to organize, and I like to develop strategies. And I could do this until the Lord comes back. But at some point, someone has to come along and say, Nate, it's time to go. It's time to start operating this strategy. You've analyzed it too much. It's time to do. I despise that person. <laughs> I want you to know. <laughs> because it, it, it puts me in an uncomfortable position. Well, what if my strategy doesn't work? Well, then we could come back and do it. And it, it makes me uncomfortable. But I know that if I'm going to be effective for God's kingdom, he's right. I need to go. And if I am not submitted to the Holy Spirit in that moment, I'm going to be annoyed and I'm going to say, God, I can't work with this idiot. And then I'm going to fall into the lie that Satan has, which is I have to do this alone. We are not meant to do the work of God alone because we don't give the complete picture of who Christ is, only a portion. But if I'm submitted to the Holy Spirit, we're going to work together, and other believers are going to come and join us, and we're all going to work together even though we're different. But it's going to be the same Spirit that brings unity, and we're going to accomplish and give a complete picture of who Christ is. And that's the benefit of being in His presence. And this leads us to the final benefit of being in his presence. And that's freedom from our flesh. 
And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, we've already talked about sin. Yes, we have. But our flesh is more than our sin. Our flesh is more than our corrupt nature. Our flesh, Paul is warning us here in Galatians, our flesh is doing things our own way and not the way that God wants us to do them. Verses 2 through 12, he talks about this. He, he goes on to talk about the law and the law of circumcision again and, and how it's only through Christ that we are justified. And this, the reader again understands the law, uh, uh, the Mosaic law was meant for Israel to separate themselves from the other nations. And this Mosaic law was nothing new other nations were following these laws of do not murder, do not steal, you know, do not, do not move the borders over here, leave them alone. Other nations around them were following these things, but it was a covenant between these nations and their king. Israel was the only nation at this time who had a covenant law between them and the God they served. And this set apart the difference. This was to set apart the nation of Israel from other nations and fulfilling the law through love of loving God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, and with all your soul would allow you to love your neighbor as yourself, thus fulfilling the law. And the first century reader understood what Paul was saying here, that the law became a hindrance to the Jews because they were using their obedience to the law as self-justification and self-righteousness. And we do that today. When we're striving after the holiness of God, sometimes we get a little high on ourselves. Eh, look at me, look what I'm doing. Instead of fulfilling His holiness through His love. So Paul is warning us here that the flesh is doing things our own way. Look at verse 13 of Galatians 5. He says it again, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And this word freedom in verse 1 and here in verse 13, Thayer's lexicon defines it as this, freedom from the dominion of corrupt desires so that we do by the free impulses of our soul what the will of God requires us to do. And another interesting word in this verse is opportunity. And quite simply, the word opportunity in Greek here means a base to operate from. It's an operation base. And so the literal reading of this verse is quite awesome. Uh, he says, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only your freedom is not an operation base for your sensuous desires. But through sacrificial giving, serve one another. Because love here is agape, and agape is sacrificial giving. But through sacrificial giving, serve one another. And so what he's warning us here is don't do the things that beware. You're not to do, your freedom is not allowing you to do what you want. You're still tied to Christ. 
and our tendency, again, in being obedient to the Word is to sometimes get a little high on self-righteousness and self-justification. And he's saying, beware of it. This is the way of the law. This is not the way of Christ. Look at it, verse 16 through 21. Verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. There's the connection. The law is doing things as you please. But you're not under the law. You are under the Spirit. And he says, here's how you know. Verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of angers, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that's great. I want you, I want you to see something here. We often relate these verses to the unbeliever, but Paul is not talking to the unbeliever here. He's talking to the believer. He's calling us out. He's telling us to examine your heart. Are you doing things your own way or are you submitting to the Holy Spirit? And the evidence is clear. Are we producing the deeds of the flesh or are we producing the fruit of the Spirit? It's clear. We don't get to define those things. Those around us define those things. And he ties it all together with Galatians 6, verses 7 through 9. And this verse made the news recently uh, with Dan Patrick. But now you're seeing the context that he's talking to the believer and how the believer lives. And Paul says this in verses 7 through 9 of chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But those who sow to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. And what Paul is saying here is, you think you're mocking God by living the way you want to live? You're deceiving yourself. Stop deceiving yourself. Live the way that God wants you to live because there's no other way. He frees us from our flesh. He frees us from doing things our own way and messing things up and uniting us in his spirit to do his work. And the way we know this, the way we know the difference is how we answer these two questions. Do I seek recognition from others or do I seek recognition from the Lord? And the second question that shows us how we are living is through how we answer this question. 
Am I serving God by asking what he wants or am I asking him to bless what I do? So in closing, there's a few challenges that God has given us. As Terry and the worship band come up, I want us to bow our heads in a moment of reflecting and examining our own heart and where God wants to free us from. Maybe you're here and you have not experienced freedom from your debt. You have never submitted your life to Christ to be free from the debt that you have against God and, and to satisfy, allow Christ to satisfy the one who you're indebted to. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and God's calling you to faith. And a call to faith is a call to action. And that action is, when I'm done praying, there's going to be ministers up here. Come down and speak with them and let them show you how to be free from your debt. And the reason why he wants you to walk down is not to embarrass you and not to single you out, but as a reminder that you don't have to do this alone, that we are here for you. Maybe you're here and you're ensnared to evil and harm done against you by someone. Christ wants you to be free from that. And it starts through the process of learning how to forgive as he has forgiven you. And when I'm done praying, your call to action is the same, to come down to the front. Because this process isn't easy and you're not going to do it alone. But Christ wants you to be free. Or maybe you're here and you're challenged, I've been living my own way. I haven't been submitted to Christ like I should. Your call to action is the same. Come, talk to someone. You don't have to walk alone in this. Christ wants you to be free. And my challenge to you today in taking action is by coming, let your freedom ring. Let the freedom that Christ has given you ring in your life so that you could be free and others around you can be free. Let me pray. Father God, we approach your throne once again, thankful for the freedom that you have given to us. And I pray that as you're challenging our heart in whatever area of life that you're challenging us in, that you would give us your boldness to act so that we can receive and live in the freedom that you have given us. So that we could say, if the Son has made us free, we are free indeed. Help us to respond to your word this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Come.